Welcome to The Accelerators. Here for you are a series of tried and tested and proven real world ideas to help you create and enjoy a business and a life of choice. The Accelerators, because success loves speed. And now we come to the guest interview of the month, and I'm delighted to bring you this guest, who is Dr. Robert Cialdini. Robert Cialdini, Bob Cialdini, is an absolute expert when it comes to understanding from scientific research, from proven ideas, exactly how people are persuaded to take action. I'm certain that you'll enjoy the interview, you'll enjoy the style of Robert Cialdini, and you'll enjoy the ideas he puts forward, which can certainly help you and I to be more effective more persuasive and more successful in all of our interactions with other people. So let's go to that interview with Dr. Robert Cialdini now. You've obviously had massive success with the various prints of your book, Influence, Science and Practice. How did you first become fascinated by the idea of influence? Well, to be honest, it was out of (laughs) (laughs) self-defense. I was always a falling victim to various fundraisers and salespeople who had come to my door, and I began to wonder, why is it that I would say yes to donate to causes I hardly heard about or to purchase items I didn't really want in retrospect, and I realized there must be a psychology to this. It must be more than just the merits of this thing. It must have to do with the way this thing is presented that engages me, that motivates, that mobilizes me. And so I decided to begin to study the psychology of influence. And is it that anybody can influence? Does anybody do that thing? I think it is the case that there are people who are born with the talent, who have an intuitive grasp of the way that the influence process works. But what I've learned in the work that we do in training and education is that the process can be taught. It's not just something that appears as a gift of a few brilliant and inspired masters of eloquence and influence. No, there's a science to this. And if there's a science, it means it's based on natural laws. And if it's natural laws, presumably you can teach someone how to do it. If there are laws, That means you can learn them and you can teach them. And we've had great success in that. Fantastic. In fact, I've got some questions later about the successes of that. Since the original research that you did and the other people that you quote in that brilliant book, what further research has been done in the idea of influence, the science of practice? Two directions that I see the field of influence going. One is extending the inquiry internationally, the idea that the principles of influence all work in various cultures and countries, but they don't work to the same degree. So something that might be especially powerful in the UK might not be so powerful in Hong Kong. There, it would be a slightly different approach that would produce the best results. And so what we've been doing recently is examining how the influence process works, not just in our home cultures, but across the globe, because after all, we're becoming a globalized environment. Could you give me some examples of that? Let's say, if we looked at, say, a Spanish culture as opposed to a German culture, how would that be different? Well, for example, there's some new research on this done by some people at Stanford University who went to Citibank the organization banking company 
has offices around the world. And they asked employees of Citibank the same question in four different cultures. If one of your colleagues approached you and asked you for help with a big project that would pull you away from your own work, under what circumstances would you feel most obligated to say yes? Good question. Most obligated being the key. Yes, most obligated. And in Spain, the answer was, I would ask myself, is this person connected to my friends? Is this requester connected to my friendship network? If so, then out of loyalty to my friends, I have to say yes to him or her. Uh, In the UK, United States, and Canada, the answer was slightly different because they said to themselves, what has this person done for me recently? If this person has benefited me, helped me, then I am obligated. I have to say yes in return. So this was back to one of the key things of reciprocation? Reciprocation, one of the principal rules of behavior. And so is friendship and liking, which the Spaniards were... Oh, because that's the liking one, because I understand. Sure. In the Far East, Hong Kong, the answer to the question of what would make you feel more obligated was, is the requester connected to a senior member of my organization, one of my superiors? If so, out of loyalty to my boss, I must say yes to this individual. So now, the loyalty is up the organization rather than to the sides the way it is in Spain or relative to a former gift or service that has been provided as it might be in Western Europe. So with the Far East, then, it was an associated authority. So it was another of the key influences. Exactly. So, so far we've talked about authority, we've talked about liking, we've talked about reciprocation. Each one is one of the principal universals of influence. All cultures play by those rules, but which one is weighted most prominently changes from culture to culture. And your first question having to do with how it might work in Germany also has an answer because these researchers at Stanford also went to the Citibank employees in Berlin. And they asked the question, under what circumstances would you be most willing to say, or most obligated to say yes to your co-worker. And the answer there was different from everywhere else. The answer there was, I would feel most obligated by asking myself the following question. According to the rules and regulations of this organization, am I supposed to say yes? And if so, then I feel obligated. So here in Germany and in the Scandinavian countries, there is a commitment to a particular set of formal rules and a desire to be consistent with that commitment that is made upon entering the organization. So it all works, and it's just as you said, there's a different weighting to it. That's right. Bob, can you tell me some of the ways that people have applied these things that you teach in their business lives? Well, we get uh, reports from some of the companies that we've worked with. There's a company in the United States called Advanta. It's a credit card and mortgage company, and they have implemented our 
six principles of influence and training throughout their organization. They do a variety of things, but we got a letter, uh, a very gratifying letter from the president of the organization who said that he's been able to trace $200 million in savings as a consequence of doing this. And it involves using each of these principles that we've talked about already, assuring that we have conveyed to people the authority, the expertise that we have in a situation before we try to influence them, being sure that we arrange for a positive rapport, liking, before we try to influence them, contact them, find out what they truly are committed to and the values and preferences, and then show them how what we have to offer is logically consistent with what they have told us they really truly value about the service or product that we can have. And then they are well advised to move in the direction that we are suggesting because it's moving in their direction. We're showing how there's a link. That combination of things as a system of influences, as a family of influences, can have truly astounding results. That's truly astounding. I noticed a key word that you were using there was the word before. Yes. You were saying a number of times before we tried to influence them. So am I right in picking up that you're saying we need to do things? If we're going to influence people, we need to create something first before we try to influence them. That's truly insightful, Peter. That is exactly one of the major themes that I offer as a conclusion that's come from the research that we've done. It is that the best way to move people in our direction is to arrange a climate in which they prefer to say yes to our requests. So it could be a liking climate where they like us. It could be a sense of authority or credibility that we have, and they would prefer to say yes in the context of a credible communicator. Another principle that we haven't yet discussed is scarcity. In the context of scarce opportunities, people move, they want to move in those directions. So all of the lessons that we teach have to do with structuring what we do and say more carefully before we make our request than the time we spend on the request itself. The key is in the context in which we place the request. You've heard the saying, you can't do business until the climate for business is right. I would make the same claim about influence. We can't be influential until we have established a climate in which people feel comfortable dealing with us because they find us trustworthy, they find us knowledgeable, they find us likable, and so on. In other words, in the gathering stage that a salesperson or business person might do, they're trying to find out which of those six principles are more heavily weighted so that they can create a climate that's appropriate to that client. That's right. And I would add that in the gathering process, they should take the role of a detective to identify which principles of influence are waiting there for them to engage, to commission in their behalf. If there is true scarcity 
with regard to what they are offering. They need to bring that to the surface. If they have true expertise and trustworthiness on this topic because of prior experience or background credentials and so on, they need to make that part of the consciousness of the person they're dealing with before they try to be influential. We have this regrettable tendency to cut to the chase. And it's understandable because we live in crowded times, but it's not the best way to be influential. Maybe the best way to be fast and rapid in our discussions with people, but it's not the best way to be effective. And we miss some easy sales and some easy business connections by jumping in too soon to tell somebody what we can do for them rather than finding out what they want us to do for them and whether or not we can do it. Exactly right. And it's the case that recognizing when it's too soon to offer your proposal is as important as recognizing what the proposal should contain itself. I have a friend who's an attorney who does mediation law between various parties, and she says that the single best insight that she's learned is that the right solution to a problem or a need is the wrong solution when it's offered at the wrong time, before people are ready to accept it. Because if they reject it, it's poison goods after that. It can't be resuscitated. So we have to be willing to do the spade work first to cultivate the ground in which we then sow the seeds for influence. Especially if you're looking for the long term. Because if the motivation comes from inside them, you've located something that resonates in them as a value or a preference, a priority, and you've linked that to what you're offering, then you don't have to be there to make the mobilization work. It comes from inside. They carry that around with them wherever they go, and that is the source of the energy. Well, of all the stories of influence you've encountered, from Hell Week initiation rights to charity request cards, or even Watergate and waiting for the promised spaceship to transport believers to the promised land, what are some of the more bizarre stories that you've heard and picked up over the years? Well, I've seen some people who are using influence strategies that make me shiver because they work in a way that ensures that later on they will have eliminated the possibility for future influence. There's a story, for example, that I heard in one of our workshops of the vice president of a large retail clothing firm who used to get agreement from his managers using this strategy. He would wait until the busiest time of the day for them, go into their office when they were up to their ears in work, sit down and in a long extended leisurely description tell them his new plan how he wanted them to be on board and how it was important for him to see them on his team didn't give them any time to think or talk through his proposal he just said it's important and invariably they would say yes of course we'll support you on this just out of intimidation on the one hand but also to get 
him out of their office so they could get back to the work they needed to do. He would extort these commitments from his managers in this way and then report to his superiors that he had consensus on this. And one of our people in the training program who was talking about this reported that, of course, none of us felt committed to those changes. None of us felt any desire to make them work. And when he tried to fly them, they collapsed with great damage to him and, in fact, to the organization. Right? Now, here's the bizarre thing about this, but I think the telling thing. While she was describing the destructive consequences of these plans, she was smiling because he needed to get his comeuppance. Nobody so, likes to be manipulated. Nobody, and so those strategies, when they are bullying, when they are dishonest, when they are coercive, will get short-term compliance in a surface way, in a verbal way, but you won't get the long-term behavioral buy-in that's so important. So back to a man or woman convinced against their will. Is of the same opinion still. What he was using, presumably then, was one of the principles of scarcity in the scarcity of time yeah. of the recipient of the message. I need to know now. Yeah. And he was also using the principle of getting a public commitment from these people. Yeah. But what he forgot is that he wasn't getting a voluntary public commitment from them. What next for Dr. Childini? Two things. One is, I do want to pursue the idea of influence as it occurs across international boundaries. I want to pursue that. We've been doing some of that work already in Eastern Europe and the United States and how it might work differently there. The other thing is resisting influence when it is used in an untoward or undue way. Let's say you have an opponent, a competitor, a rival, who is better funded than you, and can get out a message more frequently to the audience than you can because of the resources or because they have an existing relationship or greater proximity to the market. And you know that they're being dishonest in the way that they're sending this information. It's not truly authentic. What can you do to say to the audience, what can you say in the few messages that you send to them that will disempower this duplicitous rival's message? That's the direction I'm going. Fascinating. Yeah. Is that going to be another book? That's going to be something that we've already collected data on, and it will be in the next book, but it will first be an academic journal article where we demonstrate the evidence for the strategies that are best at getting that kind of outcome. Fantastic. Last question. If you were to leave the person listening to us now, Bob, with one key thought that you felt would help them to be more successful, what would it be? I think it's one of the thoughts that we've already covered and alluded to, and that is it's important to spend time on what you do before you make your request 
It's as important as the time you spend on the request itself, creating it, crafting it, presenting it. The merits of that thing will be important. But in modern business, people who have good cases to make now will not be assured of success because competitors will have good cases to make. Your job is to make your good case well. It's the presentation of your good case that will determine who gets the lion's share of the business. That's where you need to focus on the presentation, what you do first to deliver your message. Dr. Robert Shield, thank you so much. I know that we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but you have to go and do other things. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. If you've enjoyed our session today, why not head over to our website where we have loads of resources on product creation, on sales, on marketing, and of course, on personal success. That's at theacceleratorsclub.com. I'll see you there.